Welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I was joined by the whole training team at High Five. That's Rich Keegan, Chris Danboys, and Lisa Hunt. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about challenge course terminology. The terms that get used for either equipment or technique in the challenge course industry. And we want to clarify some of those terms as we often hear them sometimes misused or terms that we don't 100% agree with being used. I'm going to go first. And the one that I'm going to say is backup knot versus safety knot. And that's in reference to the double overhands that you tie to maintain the tail after you've tied the primary knot in your climbing rope. The rationale for me is I'm not a fan of the term safety knot. The reason for that is because if that unties, it does not relate to you being unsafe. And so I think that there's a psychological impact that has on participants if they see their safety knot undoing. So I refer to it as the backup knot. Okay, who's next? I just want to say that there's the this list we talked about are kind of facilitator quirks, bugs. Sometimes there are some words you just don't like to. I know, Phil, that the backup and safety that that's one of your buttons, right? Oh that's, man, that rubs me the wrong way. That's like sticking sticking your finger in his eyes. Like, <laughs> yeah. ooh, I hate that. Is there further discussion about that? Or are we? Just oh, we can your word for it. Oh yeah, we. I guess we I could discuss, we it. discuss it. Discuss it. <laughs> Well, I'd love to hear Chris's. I'd love to hear Chris's rationale if you think safety knot is the right one. <laughs> I, I think they both, in certain contexts, can accomplish the same thing. If they're tied well and they never come out, then they're a perfect safety knot. But if you think about your primary knot as your most important safety knot, then you got two of them, I guess. Yeah. In some ways, you know, there, there's even because in some circles, imagine that we're a group of mountain guides. We wouldn't even be having this conversation <laughs> because we wouldn't even be tying that knot. In their world, you tie your primary knot 100% accurate 100% of the time, and there's no need to back it up or provide more safety, if you will. So I don't know. I just think it's it's interesting depending on the context you're in. And in our world, where we're training lots of new people every year, and you can imagine summer camps all over the country bringing in their cohorts of new facilitators, and they're trying to learn knots just before camp starts. And then they've got hundreds of kids out there all summer long. The idea of putting in an an extra knot that if you tied your primary knot incorrectly is a great concept. There's a little bit of redundancy and backup in that case. And perhaps it provides some safety in places where people didn't do it well to begin with. And that's a great transition from the industries you come from or the worlds you live in, because a lot of rock climbers, when they come into doing trainings on challenge course, question that the necessity for that knot very strongly. And I agree with what you're saying. If you've tied your first one right, don't really need it. I just consider the the end climber and the term safety and seeing that undo, because I have seen that very often come undone on a, on a climb. And I have seen a lot of people freak out in the air that their safety knot is undone. So then un- unsafe. So I think there's there's also the rationale between is the term important for us as the as the tire of the knot or is the term important for the person you're going to be tying it into or onto? I've heard it referred to as a finishing knot also. Ooh, I like where that. You, sort, that's like what that. you finish with. Oh, I like that. Maybe I'm going to ter- transition to finishing. I think okay. I like that too. That, that's well, you good. can't have it, Rich. If I'm having it, you have to pick a different one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Move on. Move on. 
that's next. That's the first one. Next. So one that I am challenged by this sort of terminology, and this has to do with the stages of a locking carabiner. So most carabiners that typically are used out there, um, you know, and historically in the past were all screw gate manual locking. Once the gate was closed, you threaded a screw sleeve over that gate there and it locked it in place. And then, you know, because we're all affable humans and we don't always pay attention, sometimes people didn't lock them. So both marketers and smart people, engineers decided we could we make a auto locking style carabiner. So something that automatically has some gate locking mechanism where it becomes challenging is different manufacturers call their locking stages, different things. So you'll often hear double stage locking or auto stage, triple auto stage locking or uh, super safe locking and all of these things. So what does that really mean? And the, for me personally, I don't count the gate opening as a part of the locking stage. So if it's a twist and open, that really is just one locking action. I consider that a single stage. Some people market those as double stage. So I think you just have to be clear about with your practitioners on your course, what are different carabiner stages of locking used for? And things that require at least two actions before the gate opens should be applied in all critical applications, belaying, climber attachment, those kinds of things, securely anchoring someone at height. But yeah, I mean, what are other people's thoughts? Can you ever imagine that there would be an an industry standard around that term? What's the rationale? Do you know what the rationale is? We're such a small little industry. Yeah. Imagine that the U.S. forced Apple to never change their power plug-in because we already have hundreds of those and they should always be uniform. But every time there's a new Apple iPhone, there's a new power plug. And every time there's a new Samsung phone, there's a new power plug. So there's no, even something as ubiquitous as a phone doesn't have a standard power plug anymore. Although I will say they're going to transition to USB-C, which is for tech people out there, they'll know that is the standard of plugins now. And thankfully, Apple's tr- getting rid of the proprietary Apple stuff, which I think is the sort of like this. I think it's sort of similar in that that's an irritation in the tech world. I think sometimes when you're the outlier of anything, and we've talked about this in standards and stuff, if you're the one person not doing something a certain way, then that's an oddity you know, the three-pronged plug in our wall, right? A grounded plug that we plug all our appliances and lights in with became a national standard. And so until some regulatory regulatory body decides that this is the only thing you can use, now that might be true in work at height. So as a practitioner who's working at height under OSHA guidelines, there are very specific descriptors around the kind of connectors you can use. But with participants on courses, OSHA doesn't deal with participants. So you could put them on a screw gate carabiner. You could, you can, in essence, clip them in with anything. Now, in our industry, we want people clipped in securely. So some form of multi-stage inability to open it is really important. The issue sometimes with that terminology issue is 
uh, grabbing the wrong carabiner and using it for the wrong application. So we think of a two-stage or a triple-stage auto-locking. If you're using something that only twists and then opens and you're using that for a critical application, that's an issue. So just being aware of how the camera, the, the carabiner is termed and how it operates is a good thing, especially if you're purchasing carabiners that a vendor or someone isn't recommending to you that you don't end up getting what you consider what is written out as a double thing that's fine and it should be a triple or you know there's there's some nuance there that could lead to some safety concern so it is a good awareness i think yeah and so if you're confused about the carabiners you should purchase on your course call your vendor call high five we'd be happy to help you with that speaking of carabiners well, I mean, I, I have something to say about carabiners, but I want to go back before I bring that up and, and to say that, like, for me, for most things, I can be convinced that there is a context and a good reason to, you know what I mean? I, like, I think that I, I've gone full circle on some things. Like, if it used to drive me crazy if people said, see red, you're dead. And I'd be like, I don't want to hear the word dead on the course. But then I also found that if I'm trying to convince people to change just because I don't like it, it's not really the best for the relationship, you know? So I think that understanding where things come from another one that, that I will often gently encourage people to reframe is the idea when you're going to get lowered off an element, you'll say falling. And I'll try to explain that the difference between falling and landing and lowering and that, you know, what is it really communicating? Are you really falling? Are you getting lowered? So I think it's lining up the accuracy, which is, I think a theme that we've talked about so far, and the other piece is using terms that may have unintended negative consequences. So a lot of folks will abbreviate the word carabiner and just use the second half of the word instead of the full word. And that is a, a, a slur to folks, especially of Mexican descent. And there's an argument saying, well, it's not spelled the same way. So why should it matter? And to me, what I would say is if there's a chance that I'm using a term that's going to make somebody feel alienated, when I have a perfectly good alternative, why, why do that? And so I think that when we talk about reframing things in our workshop, sometimes it's because it's personal preference. Sometimes it's education. Other times it's just making sure that people understand why are they saying what they're saying. So to me, using the full word carabiner is I understand why I do that. And I say lowering instead of falling because it's more accurate uh, to me. I'm trying to think of the other, other ones that, that are pet peeves. I think it's it's really carabiner and see red, you're dead. I think the thing that I'm thinking of when um when we were even coming up with this list initially, I realized that all mostly all the ones I re- were writing were the ones that would negatively impact the ability for a climber to want to climb or do something because a term may frame it in a way that is scary or makes it feel like that that wouldn't be a safe thing. So the the falling thing for me, I agree. I'm not a big fan of people saying falling because the the in the indication of a fall is a very quick thing that would end in a impact with the ground. So lowering is more indicative of what the actual act is that they're going to embark in. And I don't think anyone can be ready to fall. It's like, oh, I'm ready to ready to fall. That's a, that doesn't give a lot of psychological security to the fact that the rope is not going to actually have you end up falling. It's going to support you in it. I agree. Imagine that you're up at the top of a climb and you simply turned around to your belayer and you said, I'm ready to come down now. And your belayer said, I'm ready to support you with the rope that's tied to your waist. Right. That's really what we're saying. Right. We shorten that up. And sometimes we shorten it too much and really having that conversation around. Yeah, I'm here to support you. And if you'd like to float or be lowered, 
but it's going to be at a controlled speed that's going to be of your design. Your, you're going to name how that feels. And the idea of falling, if we as the belayer trigger that, that mental image, boy, that can totally put someone at disease up there who perhaps has never sat in a harness and felt the support of a rope before. I got one I need to talk about. It's about when the harness is properly placed on someone's hips and the terminology that I've heard people use, especially for the males in the group. Things like make sure your eggs are all in the same basket, uh, furniture's all in the same place. But I think I can rarely think over the 25, 30 years that I've really had any male participant um, have a problem with that. What I have had a problem with is uh, middle school students running around trying to grab each other's harness. Anybody have any thoughts about that? I think it's just, I've, I've seen facilitators use it to get a laugh. That doesn't serve anything other than to highlight the thing that we're trying not to highlight. <laughs> that then you may get a wedgie from the harness, right? Like it may it may be uncomfortable. There's times where if um yeah. s- someone's sitting into the harness on the swing, as an example, like they're coming oh, off yeah. the ladder, I've seen people get pinched and it's uncomfortable. And I'm normally I normally just gently bring them off the ladder and say, are you good right now? Or do we need to bring the ladder back? It it doesn't need to be like this big thing that you address. It's like bringing up, right. like, don't push that big red button. Oh, now there's a big red button. It's like, you, br- you bring up something like that. You know, And I've seen when people do it as well, they'll mention it to one kid and watch how it spreads. And then oh, you'll hear gosh. someone saying, oh, they said furniture in the same room. You're like, all right, okay. But it just, it takes away some of the emphasis on you checking that the harness is safe. Yeah, I think it, I think you can follow the the maturity level and trajectory of some people's uh, level of professionalism with that term. There's mm-hmm. probably a time when they didn't know that because whoever taught them was mature enough to not teach them that, and then they thought it was a cool way to get laughs. And eventually, they matured out of the need for them to be cool in front of the group. And then eventually, their maturity and their responsibility level, they're training others, it goes away again. I know that's been the trajectory in my own experience with the use of those kinds of terms. The same thing with like, you know, like Lisa brought up, you know, you see red, you're dead in reference to the red label on some of the headwall harness buckles when they're not double back. Brain bucket versus helmet. What kind of imagery does brain bucket pull out? Now with the right group, Maybe you're going to, you're working with a group of firefighters and they're used to wearing helmets all the time. And they know that term. Maybe that's a, an appropriate term in using that with them, but probably not middle school students. They're probably not going to be a big fan of picturing their or their friend's brains inside a bucket on their first climbing experience ever. So a little more professionalism will go a long ways. Yeah, and we talked about, I think Rich brought it up, so that some of these are our own facilitator preference and some of these are just pet peeves that we hear enough of. We're like, ah, please, I wish people would stop saying those things. But no, the most of the rationale behind it is not us doing it because we're trying to be petty on these words and like nitpick on words and people are going to be like, oh, what, we can't do this anymore? It's more about thinking of professionalism and then also the psychology, as I referenced, the psychology of the participants. There is an episode, it's called First Impressions, talking about how you set up a course and how the neat gear storage and wearing harnesses, all those kind of things help a group get further. This is all the same thing. It allows group, you're able to take your groups further than you would if you started adding all of these into it. I'm sure that there's reasons why people don't want to do certain things. 
because they've seen a facilitator improperly do something. This isn't a term thing, but the lowering. When people do, I've seen people do Tower of Terror drops where they'll really dr- fast drop a participant and they think it's funny and cool. There's now five or six kids who will never climb because you've done that. Or seeing the climber join, or the player join the climber in the air when there's a weight differential and the person likes to jump because they think it's funny that they get lifted at the same time as the person gets lowered. Those things are, there's a certain point where those things might be funny in your head, but aren't either professional, but also not good for the psychology of the participants and not going to serve you in the long term. And that might be appropriate between two people, but everybody else who's watching you has a different relationship. Like we might be cool with that, you and me, Phil, but somebody else who doesn't know me might be like, oh, is Lisa going to drop me that hot? You know, not that I would drop you from the tower, but you know, you always, exactly what you're saying, thinking about who's watching. This episode of Vertical Playpen is supported by Atomic Climbing Holds. If you've ever seen one of our climbing towers or climbing walls or traverse walls, you will have seen Atomic Climbing Holds on those structures. All orders ship in one to five business days, so very, very quick delivery on those holds. And they have removable climbing holds that are absolutely great for the challenge course industry. You can find their website at atomic, that's A-T-O-M-I-K, climbingholds.com. I just thought of another one, which Mm. is not so much a pet peeve, it's more of a learning style thing. And I wonder how many of you, maybe you could just raise your hands. How many of you learned how to tie a knot based on like a story about the knot? So everyone's hands are up. Except mine. Well, people tried to teach me, but I could not, I kept saying like, why was the rabbit in the hole to begin with? And why? And so I appreciate that a lot of folks learn knots that way. And it's never been, I've never had the ability to either learn that way or teach that way. So if that's working for you, great, keep doing it. I would encourage you, though, if you're teaching knots to other people to also know alternative terminology. So basic knot craft terms like a loop, a bite, a standing end, a working end. So that for those who glaze over like me, when I tried to learn the bowling in my teens. So, oh, what you want to look for is this. So have alternatives to stories that might not make a lot of sense, because if. You know, you've got someone who for the rest of their adult life, well, this is Mick Jagger's tongue. I don't have any other way to explain it. It's like, I think it it ups our professionalism as an industry when we have other terms to add. What other terms do do we have terms that we really like using that may be an individual facilitator preference? Like for me, I think I learned this from Hutch Hutchinson through a program at high five when he was framing a uh, low element they just kind of reminded the group and i think they were high school students about remember pool rules and effect on these lows no running jumping or diving and the group was like oh okay i like that this is just a this is the same thing as my personal preference so i think that it tries to make make things lighter or friendlier but i think it makes puts people off at the same time so i agree with Lisa, on some of the stories, I prefer this to talk about loops and bites and standing and working ends. And I think that sometimes the stories are cute, but I, I'm, I struggle to find some of the value in them. There are plenty of it. There are a few videos on our YouTube, Facebook of me teaching my daughter who was who was four, how to tie knots. And you'll know I didn't do any of those things with her. And she learned those knots pretty good. I'm going to bring one up that has no good answer. <gasps> Is it a sit harness? Yeah. Or is it a seat harness? 
I love that you say this has gotten a good answer because when you wrote that on the list, I couldn't tell which one was right because <laughs> I have heard it referred to as a a seat harness. Yeah, seat. As in you're sitting in a seat. Ah, oh, but yeah, sit. Yeah, that's seat. the only way I think I've heard of it. What should it be, Chris? Lisa's looking up the high five guide right now. So this is going to be, what does our guide for the org that we work with say? I'm pretty sure it says seat. I've seen other places sit. Yeah. Because you're sitting in it, right? It's a sit harness. You sit in it. Yeah. Or is it a place where you put your seat? (laughs) Okay. Lisa is showing us that it says seat harness in our pew. That makes me feel good. It refers to it as the seat harness. Yeah. Other publications, including, I think, Freedom of the Hills, probably refers to them as sit harnesses. And unfortunately, there's another whole authority having jurisdiction that doesn't even recognize either of those terms. OSHA calls them body belts. Because hmm. there are full body harnesses in the OSHA world, and then there are body belts. And what they're referring to is a seat harness. We have chest harnesses. Why would they not be yeah. called waist harnesses? Good question, Phil. Like it would be cool. Like, so we're saying it's a sit harness or a seat harness because we sit in a seat. But what would you call it about the chest? So you'd say like I spread well, my spread harness. It, seat harness, and you're using the term to refer to your seat as in your bum. Yeah. Then oh, okay. Harness isn't referring so to your, your chest. So when they're saying seat, they're referring to the seat of your anatomy. Right. So if it was your sit harness, then it might be your don't fall upside down harness oh my goodness wow yeah so okay doesn't turn well i i think that what i think what we're saying is i think that it should be called the waist harness patent pending that makes <laughs> more <laughs> makes more sense than because that's the thing that goes around your waist well, yeah i don't know yeah, no, no, no good answer no but good just answer. know that all of those are referring to the same thing <laughs> But I would love to hear if Bob Ryan is listening. I would love to hear Bob's take on this. So, Bob, you could just comment. Let us I'm know. pretty sure Bob calls it a seat harness. We would love. I'm to liking hear from the him. bum belt. No, because that's there's there's already a term for that. There's the, that's what you would call the the fanny pack. In England, we call it the bum bag. <laughs> so you can't get away with that. Oh. This is actually a good one. This is a term one. Oh, perfect. That's the difference between the, the countries. The P-Bus in England. So if you're listening to this and you're not in America, you might know the action of the pull brake under slide technique of belaying. You might refer to that as the V to the knee, one, two, three. And I think that that's a, that's a good one because I've, especially when I'm working with international staff at summer camps, they'll be very confused when I'm saying we're going to be learning this style of ballet and they're very confused, but they do know it, although there is a difference and the difference is what you do with your hands. With the P-bus, you do the pull action, brake, and you put your hand under and you slide your brake hand up and that hand never leaves the rope. In Vita and the one, two, three, it's a hand over hand action to retrace your steps back up. So you create the V of the rope, you bring the brake strand down to your knee and then you do one, two, three of hand swapping to go back to your original position. But that is a term difference that in the in England I'd never heard of the P-bus method of belaying, but I'd ne- heard it as the V to the knee, one, two, three. It's unfortunate too because language does matter and P-bus I think was originally, I've seen in some texts, the PUS method, the P-U-S, just pull under slide. Never good to belay 
that way. With pus. The pus. Here's a question though. Hmm. V to knee one, two, three, mm-hmm. or PBUS, is that any different than Mick Jagger's lips or the bunny coming in and out of the hole to tie around a bowling? Yes. Yes. And I, I, because they're specific to the action, yeah. they're an actual thing rather than it would okay. be different if, because the V to the knee is like literally bring, you create a V, you bring it to your knee and then you swap your hands one, two, three. If, which I think is why as well, that is easier to learn it, I think it's easier to learn that method in England than it is the pull break under slide, only because of the rhyming factor. It's just a specific to that has a rhyme. I do think that there is something fun about the rhyme that helps. But when I see the rhymes get used elsewhere, that's if if it's not clearly explaining the act, then it's as it's as silly. It would be like calling P bus calling it something different because of the of something. Of, I don't know. I don't know what you would change to make that sillier. That's a challenge now to anyone listening. Yeah, How can you make the people silly? That accurately <laughs> describes the technique, pull, yeah. break, under, slide. And, and again, I don't, if anybody's using with success stories about nuts, I'm not suggesting that you're a poor instructor, that you have to stop doing that. What I'm saying is that like knowing other ways of teaching and why you're doing it that way, like anything that we would say is important. I also think the the sometimes the problem with the the fun terms or that they stick in the brain so much that they cloud away from all others. So a good example is the the spotting practice that people use to ensure that people's fingers stay together. So they'll say spoons not forks or knives. People then get so drilled in on spoons, not forks, or knives, they forget every other component of the spotting practice that's important, like the actually looking at people and the actually not getting distracted and having a side conversation or the leg position that would be as important. So someone will stand with their feet together. They'll have their spoons ready, but then as soon as any weight impacted their spoons, they fall over. Well, that really doesn't ultimately serve the purpose of it. I'm not a big fan of the spoons, forks, knives thing because... I don't think the spoons methodology of holding your fingers together is the greatest way to support somebody's body if they were falling on you. You almost want to cushion them by spreading the fingers out wider anyway. I do get the rationale that the thought of catching something on the fingers. But Chris, do you know, has, has there been studies to, of fing, people's fingers getting broken by their fingers being spread wide? I don't know if any particular study has been done. You know, if it were probably done, it would probably be in the rock climbing industry where spotting is a pretty common thing in the, in the sport of bouldering, especially outdoors. When people are coming down, redirecting their body into a good stance or a soft area of the ground, however you manage that is probably a win and not getting hurt yourself in the process Mm -hmm. is a part of that. And I, I agree. I think sometimes having your hands ready to, you know, with your fingers open to manipulate something, including someone's body may be helpful. Other times making sure your fingers don't get broken and having your fingers closer together may be more beneficial. I think where I see the issue, uh, especially with newer facilitators when I'm doing like a uh, certification, is they get so stuck on that that they'll watch participants and they'll keep saying to their kids, spoons, 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 but not one of their feet are in a good position or a good stance. Like you get yeah. caught on the wrong part because you're focused on the part that's easy to remember, but then you because you've created a story or whatever, but then you forget and negate all the other components of a good spotting practice. So it becomes a little bit like you're in blinkers or blinders to that. 
Yeah, feet and focus are more important than paws or claws. Ooh, I like that. Feet and focus. That's a good focus. A good you, can, you can use that. I hope that makes the podcast. <laughs> I'll cut that out and I'll say that I made that up. Awesome. I know that we had on the list low element names, but maybe we'll make that another episode as like a teaser. I, I don't know if it warrants another episode other than it goes in what, what we talked about with the, the names of not tying practice. But Maybe we can just have a whole podcast on any element name. To yeah, sure. Great. Element yeah, names. We'll do fun. it. Evolution of them. Yeah. History okay. History of the name. Great. So thanks everyone. Uh, for in, engaging in this conversation. Once again, as a reminder, if you want to reach out to any single one of us, it's our first initial last name at highfiveadventure.org. If it's something very specific to the podcast, email podcast at highfiveadventure.org. And please, as always, rate, review, subscribe, share it with everyone. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving Article Pass a guide. <laughs>